This episode of No Place Like Home was brought to you by the Sierra Club, which encourages you to get out there and enjoy, explore, and protect the planet. Join Sierra Club's 3 million members and supporters who are working to power this nation with 100% clean energy at sierraclub.org. And now, on to the show. Hi, I'm Anna Jane Joyner. And I am Marianne Hitt, and this is No Place Like Home, a show that gets to the heart of climate change. Today, we'll be talking about all of Trump's recent executive orders on climate, which were insane. And we have a great interview with journalist David Roberts of Vox about what Trump just did, what it means, what we should do, and why this is actually a golden age for activism. But first, Marianne and I have some catching up to do. How are you doing? Anna Jane, I'm great. And I'm so excited. We just got to hang out IRL in real life. It was the I best. know. It was so much fun. And in New Orleans, which is one of my favorite cities in the whole world. Um, tell us why you happened to be in New Orleans this past week. Well, it was pretty crazy because we had this conference of about 350 people who are part of all of these different organizations around the country that are part of the Beyond Coal campaign. So there are everyone from lawyers and experts to community leaders to campaigners who are working in some way or another to get their community to move beyond coal to clean energy. And it's this incredible like open source network of people that's changing the world that's that is really retiring coal plants, bringing clean energy online cleaning up our air and water, you name it. It's just incredibly inspiring. And check this out. I'm leading this conference. And on the day that our conference starts, the day it starts, Trump signs the executive orders on climate that made headlines around the world last week on everything from the Clean Power Plan, which is the carbon climate standards for power plants, to the uh, lifting the moratorium on uh leasing uh, coal at bargain basement prices from federal lands. I mean, I'm sure listeners have at least heard a little bit about it, but to be in a room of 350 brilliant, super sophisticated activists on the day that that happened was both uh, incredibly uh, like reassuring and also a little intimidating. Sort of what do you say to a room of people in a moment like this? So it was, uh, it, it was, it was, very memorable. <laughs> Just put it yeah. that way. And then, <laughs> no and then you came to see me at the at, at the end of the conference, which was so awesome to get to hang out together. I know. I was I was so glad. It was definitely a gift. Um I yeah, it's like I live like three hours from New Orleans and any excuse I can get to get down there is um one it's one of my favorite things. And we listened to incredible jazz music and sat in a big backyard and drank wine and it was like what my soul needed. <laughs> for, mine too. Mine too. Totally. Probably everyone's soul. Everyone's soul, I think, needs those things right yeah. now. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and on the way there, so as I've shared with you, I'm obsessed with this new podcast called Shit Town or S-Town in the radio-friendly version. Um, and I've gotten you hooked on it along with apparently like over 10 million other people. <laughs> but I didn't get them hooked on it, but over 10 million other people have downloaded it. So S-Town is this fascinating podcast about a man from Woodstock, Alabama, a tiny little town just outside of Birmingham. And I mean, I honestly don't know if I've ever like experienced a more enthralling story. I like completely threw out two days of my life and just like obsessively listened to this podcast. But one of the things 
that really stood out to me is that he was in his own way a climate activist. And even though it's this very human, like layered story, climate change, you know, is a big part of his life and, and his thinking. And it was really interestingly like over interwoven into his larger life story. And, and it got me thinking a lot about both like kind of unusual characters who do deeply care about these issues. And also just the, I don't know, the kind of the idea of talking about climate change is not like an issue or a campaign, but really like an integral part of our lives. Um, yeah. What did you think? Well, I thank you for thank you slash I hate you for uh, turning me on to it because <laughs> I now I'm like trying to find two days of my life where I can just check check out from society and listen to it all. So I'm only halfway through. <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't actually hate you, but thank you. It's amazing. <laughs> and um, and I, you know, it's one of those one of those where you're just listening to an incredible story and climate change kind of creeps in and you're so surprised to find it there because I think somehow we have like categorized it in our lives and in our heads as well. Like this is this thing about the news and about science and policy. And it's not about something that's inner woman to our everyday lives. And yet here we have this story where it just keeps springing up. And I also think people think that uh, the South and people who live in rural places are, think of them as kind of this monolith. And I think uh, frankly, like think that we are stupid, like, you know, people like you and me who live in West Virginia and <laughs> Alabama and having somebody uh, who is like, you know, waking up every day worrying about extinction and worrying about sea levels rising uh, as they are just generally worrying about um, sort of things in life that we need to make better. And also I felt like another another thing about the, the podcast, a part of the story was he worried about these things because he didn't want to give up on people. Like he, whether it was an individual person he didn't want to give up on or sort of humanity living on this planet in a better way. Like this was a person who didn't want to give up on our ability to make things better. And that really, that really struck a chord with me as well. There's people like this in every little corner of the world who are just determined not to give up. So. I know. I love that. And so it kind of, so basically I listened to the last few episodes on the way to visit you. And then after our divine evening doing podcasts and drinking wine outside in a huge backyard. <laughs> I went up to Baton Rouge to visit my little brother who goes to LSU. Um, and we it ended up going out to this like college bar that night. And I just like on a whim after a couple of cocktails <laughs> was like, I want to ask everyone in this bar what they think about climate change. I didn't get to everyone, but I did like just spark up some fascinating conversations <laughs> with <laughs> random strangers in Baton Rouge, Alabama that. or Baton Rouge, Louisiana about climate change. And what really struck me was people were eager to talk about it. Like I was, you know, I was, you know, given it's a very red part of the country, I was expecting pushback. But for the most part, people, it was almost like I was giving them license to talk about it. Like they, the, the kind of main response was like, yeah, what? what is going on with that? It sounds bad. What can we do about it? And um, there was a lot of engagement, which I wasn't, you know, like random stranger coming up to you in a college bar, wasn't expecting that. And, you know, even on the way home yesterday, I was, I stopped to have lunch in Biloxi and my server was like this, like very like thoughtful, you know, guy who like was deeply concerned about climate change and told me all these stories about how much hotter it is in the winter in Biloxi. And, you know, the one guy I run into in southern Mississippi just happens to be deeply concerned about climate change. It it really made me think that there's a lot more happening in these kind of uh, rural places than we than we expect. And it gave me a lot of hope. <laughs> 
Anna Jane Joyner, you are an American hero. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's the kind of thing we all think we should do and tell each other we should do. And then you just go out and do it. And it's uh, and it's surprising, right? Do you think, how much do you think it has to do with uh, <clears throat> the way people responded had to do with um, the fact that people are actually feeling the effects of it, like the weather isn't the same or things around me aren't the same. And I how really, much of it was just like, no one ever brings it up. Oh, hey, I'd love to talk about this. No one ever brings this I up. I really think it was a combination. Like I um, like obsessively follow climate change on Twitter and I've just noticed so many more people over the past couple of months talking about like how weird the weather is. Um, like everyday people, not activists. And and like certainly living down here in the South, like, you know, the weather has been crazy down here. You know, like we our high was in this or our average temperature was in the 70s when it should have been the 50s. We only had one frost, which means our bugs are crazy and the storm like the Gulf waters insanely hot, which means the storms are scarier. And so you can see it like if you live down here and you're paying attention, you can see it. And I, I really do think that people are starting to be like, oh, this isn't this some like far away foreign academic subject. This is something that's like I can feel and see in my own life and it affects me. And I think people don't really feel comfortable talking about it or like there is this like hesitation to talk about it, especially in places like Alabama and Louisiana. So when someone gives you that opportunity, you know, it, it, at least in that circumstance, it definitely felt like people were were excited to be like, yeah, what is going on? <laughs> like, what's like, what do we do about this? And maybe your average climate activist or not to generalize, like I'm, I'm about to say don't generalize and then I'm about to generalize, but <laughs> <laughs> totally. okay. But I think people generalize of uh, people in the South and people in rural America that like we, everyone's a climate denier and no one sees what's going on. And it's not, it's not the case. Uh, and, uh, and I think maybe your, your average climate activist would be surprised by the, by that reaction. But again, I don't want to generalize climate activists any more than I want to generalize <laughs> folks in the South. So well, yeah, I, I do think it's fair to say that, yeah, like the South gets written off in a lot of ways, which in some ways is very understandable. The South has a lot of problems, but also I think there is like, you know, there's these, there's people like John B. McLemore and my awesome server at the seafood restaurant yesterday, you know, like they, there, there are people here who are very interested and engaged and thoughtful. And, and sometimes I think in, sort of overlooking the South as a whole, we miss the the importance of individuals to really make a difference in, in their in their own communities and lives. Well, speaking of interesting Southerners, we also, the one other thing we did when we were together, before we went and drank the wine, in the backyard, <laughs> I will just for like the record, um, was to talk to David Roberts, who is originally from Tennessee, now lives in Seattle, and is one of the most, uh, I think, compelling and important journalists out there writing on climate. He used to write for Grist and now he is with Vox. And I think I am one of many people who, as soon as something happens in the world, he is one of the first people that I go and look to and read to figure out what is his take. And so we were, we got to uh, talk with him. We were in New Orleans. He was in Seattle, but we got to do a great interview with him that we are excited to share with our listeners. Yeah. And this was like, I was really personally looking forward to this interview because I have this odd connection to him that I don't he definitely wasn't aware of. Um, but when I was kind of first really digging into climate change, um, I came across one, his TEDx talk. And I mean, it's a phenomenal talk. Everybody should go listen to it. But it just the way that he described and it was it was well, so the way that he described climate change was 
it was just so simple and straightforward and compelling. And for some, you know, and I'd taken classes in climate modeling and communications in college. It's not like I was not academically aware of the situation, but his TEDx talk was the first time that I remember it feeling really personal and really kind of, it kind of, you know, migrated from my head to my heart in a way. Um, yeah, he, he had a deeply important influence in my life. So I, I love this interview. It was incredibly inspiring and I can't wait to share it with all of y'all. So let's get right to it. I love that statement that it was what made this issue migrate from your head to your heart. I think that's what we're trying to do with this podcast. And uh, I think this interview with David Roberts of Vox is going to do that as well. So let's go to the interview. But first, let's listen to this. Hi, my name is Diana and I'm from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Go Heels! Your dinner party climate fact for today is this. Nearly twice as many people work in the U.S. solar industry as work in the entire U.S. fossil fuel electricity generation industry. Here's our interview with David Roberts from Vox, uh, one of my favorite climate journalists in the world. Get excited. Welcome. Hi. Hi. So the first uh, thing I just wanted to start off with, because what we want to talk to you about uh, is the things that have been happening in the past couple of weeks on, in the climate news and what they mean. So uh, could you just start off by um, giving us a quick recap from your vantage point of like the last, I don't know, 48, 72 hours? What are, what are the big headlines of the things that happen? And then we'll talk about what they mean. Sure. Well, I don't know if that um, time window includes the stream protection rule, uh, um, reversing that. That's where I would sort of mark the starting point. There was that. And then uh, there is the um, environmental executive order, which itself is an unruly collection of about 12 different things, uh, all of which uh, uh, imply action on part of other government departments. So some of that has started, too. So we saw uh, Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke yesterday um, basically responding to the EO as he, uh, or, or doing what he saw as what the EO demanded, which was uh, canceling the review of the coal leasing program, lifting the moratorium on coal leasing, and uh, promising uh, to continue a long march through the Department of Interior's rules, searching for anything that in any way uh, impedes the production of fossil fuels on public land. So I'm sure we can expect a lot more. Uh, of that. One of the key things I've been wrestling with, and I'm actually uh, here, I'm in New Orleans, Anna Jane and I are, are in New Orleans, because we just wrapped up a conference of people from all over the country who are part of the Beyond Coal campaign. And, mm-hmm. um, and then I've been talking to some different reporters, and it's, it's sort of, uh, what, is it, what does it mean? Uh, is, you know, is, this, is this Trump's third failure after you know, the failure on the Muslim ban and the failure on the, on the Affordable Care Act? And his third failure is going to be he thinks he can wave away all of our climate progress and he can't. And, you know, my my message to folks at this conference and then talking to reporters has been Donald Trump can't 
reverse our progress. Coal plants are going to keep retiring. Renewable energy is cheaper than coal now, and that it's going to keep growing. Um, but I also don't want to paper over that it's still a big deal, you know. And so, how do you? What do you think the significance of it is? Yeah, it's it's way more it's way more difficult to answer that question in this case than it is for healthcare, right? Like, for instance, like healthcare is just one big bill. It failed, <laughs> so you got a kind of a tidy story. Mm-hmm. But the but this but the executive order on on uh, energy, as you know, has all these disparate elements. So, um, so take the Muslim ban, right? Failed because of the courts. It's it's possible that Trump will run into failures, more failures like that, because. Um, the really big pieces of what he's trying to do with this EO uh, uh, are going to go through extensive court battles. So the three big rules, EPA rules that he's going after, new new uh, power plants, existing power plants, carbon on both those, and then the methane rules. As you know, he can't just wipe those away. So Pruitt has got to start another rulemaking process for every for every one of those, and he's got to go through all the legal steps of the rulemaking process, including justifying to a court why he's doing it. And, and you know, given the science, the pretty clear picture of the science paints, uh, it's entirely possible. And, you know, uh, as you know well, there are going to be environmentalists suing him and fighting him in court at every stage of that process. So, A, that process is going to take a long time. We probably won't know how whether and how much that succeeds until, I mean, maybe after Trump's first term. It's, I mean, it's going to be a long legal battle. So the answer on whether this is a third failure on that score is we don't know yet. It's going to take a long time to figure out. But the one clearly, unambiguously terrible aspect of all this is that Trump has just made it very, very clear to federal employees, to uh, to politicians up and down the uh, up and down the line, and to other countries, we don't care about climate change. It's 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 official. It, all efforts to address climate change are are we're, we're tossing them and dismantling them as fast as possible. And that's just a terrible, terrible message to send to the international community when we're at a time when international climate change action is 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 a starting to get some traction and actually happen as opposed to just being talked about as it has been for decades and b we're just like right in the middle of so many sensitive negotiations so many bilateral and multilateral side deals on climate you know i think uh, somebody i talked to somebody who was at the state department the other day and or or who had previously been at the state department and he told me that there's something like 12 or 15 separate bilateral agreements just with China on on climate stuff. So all those agreements and all those negotiations now have been just cast into a state of chaos. No one knows how Tillerson's going to approach that stuff. No one knows how Trump is. So it's like uh, it's just a, it's a mixed bag. I mean, on net, it's obviously terrible. It's like with everything else Trump does. A lot of it depends on, A, how many terms he's in office. <laughs> because theoretically, 
four years is not enough for these actions that he just took to do real serious damage. And theoretically, if a Democrat was put back in office, could reverse all this stuff and repair all this stuff without too big of a substantive impact. We just sort of resume the progress we were on before. But if he wins a second term, or if he's more successful than people expect in corrupting the federal judiciary, because a lot of environmentalist hopes at this point are pinned on the judiciary. If he corrupts the judiciary, installs a bunch of hack judges, or, or, or things get really weird and authoritarian, and he starts ignoring you know, court rulings, like it's really unpredictable at this point just how creepy and authoritarian he's going to get. So, you know, there's no clear answer, as you can tell from the fact that I just rambled on for 20 minutes about it. Um, so I actually have been following you for several years, and you probably, I mean, I'm sure you don't know this, but you actually had a really uh, monumental impact on my kind of evolution into a climate activist. As Marian mentioned, I was tapped to do this documentary, um, Years of Living Dangerously, um, while I was working on the Beyond Coal campaign. So basically, when they first um, called me to do this, I was like, I need to brush up on climate change because it's been a couple years since I was in school and took classes on this. And I, you know, just kind of immersed myself in that world. And one of the first things that I came across was your TED Talk um, that you did <laughs> at Evergreen College. And I have this really specific memory of driving through the Blue Ridge Mountains and listening to it and, and really, you know, crying. Like it was one of the, the oh. pieces of climate content that just hit me in a really deep, visceral way. And I think it was just the clarity that you, you spoke to the issue. Um, and then also at the very end when you kind of, you, you, you kind of Down. just laid it out. You and I look around at current politics, particularly U.S. politics, and massive, coordinated, intelligent, ambitious action does not strike us as particularly plausible. In fact, it might strike us as impossible. But that is where we are, stuck between the impossible and the unthinkable. So your job, anyone who hears this, for the rest of your life, your job is to make the impossible possible. Thank you. You know, what we're looking at is the, you know, the unthinkable and the impossible. And our job is right. to make the impossible possible. And I really took that on and, and have, you know, since then really dedicated my life to this issue. But I'm curious where you are now with that, especially with this, <laughs> with this onslaught. <laughs> so I want to say thank you because it, re it really did transform my life and my activism. But I'm, I'd also love to hear an update on, on your thinking around making the impossible possible. <laughs> Yeah, well, thank you so much. I was that talk was a long time ago, and I, man, that that video has had a weird afterlife. It is, I still get emails about that. Like, I don't think there was anything that extraordinary about what I said. It's just testament to how difficult it is to find clear communication in the climate world. Just straightforward communication about this issue. You would think by now people would have figured it out, but just like. I feel so bad for people like, like you who are sort of like wandering in, like, I need to catch up on this. Where do I go? What do I read? And there's just like so much obscure language, so much double talk, so much technical talk. It's just really difficult for people to find. So like this video was like, for a lot of people, I feel like it was like a drink of water in the desert, like someone talking to me like I'm a, like I'm a human being straightforwardly. So 
anyway, it's like I'm both flattered that that talk lives on <laughs> so long, but also it's to me it's like a sign of the the poor state of climate communications that the sort of obscure TEDx talk is the best people can find for you know, getting the straight scoop. That's part of why we started this podcast, because we had the same feeling that it was just very, very inaccessible and impenetrable. And, uh, and yeah. we wanted to do our, do our part to try to break through that. So um, I, I'd love to follow up on the making the impossible possible piece of it in this in this era, because, again, I was just with all these beyond coal folks. And, um, you know, the the question of uh, does this mean we won't hit the emission targets of the clean power plan, you know, Trump's actions. Does this mean uh, we yeah. won't hit our Paris targets? And my message to these folks is, um, you know, utilities, big companies, they're making 10 and 20 and 30 year investment decisions. They are not going to make investment decisions around a world where no one's addressing climate change. So advocates and the private sector are going to keep charging down the road in re- retiring coal plants, replacing them with clean energy um, and, and yet I also don't want to, I don't want to be naive that, that, that all of this is going to be easy. And so what do you think now about, like, I feel like I've been sort of preaching the make the impossible possible to people that I want to have out there with me doing it. Uh, but what do you think about that now? Well, I mean, in a sense, nothing's changed in a sense, the basic, the basic shape of the situation has not changed which is, if you just look at objective measures, <laughs> success looks unlikely. Like, I personally think, you know, this is not what I'm going to say to a room full of activists or whatever, but I personally think the chances that we hit two degrees at this point are very, very, very low. Very low. And the chances that we hit our clean power plan targets are, ironically, I think, somewhat higher, just because the short-term momentum, like you say, is underway. I mean, basically, the way the U.S. has gotten carbon reductions in the last few years is by switching out coal for natural gas and then, alongside that, increasing the share of renewable energy. But it's been mostly substituting coal for natural gas or natural gas for coal. And that can go on for a long time. You can get much more substantial reductions than we've gotten just through that. And that's more or less what the world's been doing, too. Like, so that process is going to continue in the short term for, for purely economic reasons and because of state policy. I mean, we, you know, we can't forget that most of the carbon policy or, or, or renewable energy policy with any, with any teeth or force has happened at the state level. I mean, it's very arguable that the clean power plan would have just, you know, that the targets would have been exceeded with or without the clean power plan. So, so, but, but in terms of the big situation, there is no such thing as success or failure in climate change. There's only how much is the temperature going to rise, right? And more is worse and less is better. And no matter what situation you're in, even if you're already at two degrees, it's way better to stop there than it is to go to three. And it's way better to stop there than it is to go to four. So it's just, it just gets worse and worse. So there's never any substantive justification for stopping the fight, right? No matter how bad things get, they can get way worse. So, you know, there's no excuse to stop fighting. Like, if the, the fight, 
you know, insofar as you can restrain the rise of temperature, you're saving a lot of lives and preventing a lot of suffering, no matter what the final temperature target is. Less is better. I get that people want, they want hope and they want markers and metrics and they want targets and they want some sense that this thing is not completely futile. But we should just keep in, in mind in the back of our heads that this is a fight that none of us can avoid and that is going to go on for the entirety of this century. Our kids will be fighting this fight. One thing where I think there's hope to be found in, in the short to midterm is I have never in my life seen a political environment that is so unsettled, <laughs> so volatile and uncertain and, and kind of just crazy and unpredictable. It's, it, and, and that means also that it's incredibly malleable. No one knows what the hell's going on right now. No one, including the people running things. No one knows what Trump's victory really means. No one knows. There's just this incredible volatility and uncertainty, all of which is just to say that these are the kind of political circumstances where small sort of perturbations, <laughs> where small uh, actions can have large effects. This is the kind of political situation where individuals can make a huge difference, right, in very unpredictable ways, right? The situation is going to resolve one way or the other. It might resolve in the way of America continuing to fall apart into armed camps and devolving into autocracy and following the path of Russia or Hungary. Or, or it might resolve in the way of this being what I think um, a lot of people on the left want to see it as, which is sort of the last flailing gasp of a dying worldview, which is just going to serve to inject civil society and journalism and, and the institutions of, of American democracy with strength and spine. You know, it might just be activating the, the, the left and civil society in a way that couldn't have happened without this, and their strength will, you know, stitch America back together and, 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 and it's the same for climate activists now. Like it's it's incredibly volatile. There's an immense amount of potential energy in the air and uncertainty. And these are the times when you can you know, individuals can be heroes. These this is this is the time when heroes are possible. So it's the last time in the world to give up and go home. Oh, I love that. You <laughs> for not being very hopeful, you just gave me a great deal of hope. <laughs> So oh, thank you. Um, but I, I'm curious for for our listeners and and even for you know activists too. I mean, I think we're all everybody, the whole country, other than some very right wing people like my father, have no idea what's going on. And and you're right. I think it is this moment of uncertainty. But you know, what do you think that it, the kind of the average people who are concerned uh, are? Certainly, say average, but not the activists. Um, like my brothers and sisters and friends. Like, what do you think the most important for thing for them to be doing is well anyone who is not becoming politically active right now the thing they ought to do is become politically active right this is no this is an all hands on deck type of situation like read the news you know at, at the very least everybody should be calling their representatives right this is, i mean there's this uh, one of the things that's been most heartening and and most uh, exciting to me is just this incredible outpouring post trump not only of energy and enthusiasm which though which which can easily 
disperse, right? There's no guarantee that energy will, will last or leave any lasting legacy, you know, and we've seen, like, you know, remember the, 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 the supposed revolutions in the Middle East that were going to happen because of, you know, Twitter or whatever. It's, it's enormous outpouring of energy, but there was no organizational or institutional structure to take that energy and make anything lasting out of it, so it all just dispersed. And that's the danger now. So one of the things that's been heartening to me is how much really savvy, ground-level organizing savvy is coming out of all this. You know, like the Indivisible Guide is a great example. Just concrete stuff, not get excited and do something, but here's your lawmaker, here's the phone number, call and say something like this, right? Just detailed instructions for how people can get involved and matter. And so, you know, insofar as you're even casually concerned about climate change, because of this atmosphere of uncertainty and and, and just ferment, now is the time to just start talking about it, right? Just Facebook about it, whatever. Talk to your friends about it. Call your lawmakers about it. I think a lot of people have this background assumption that, like, someone's on it. (laughs) When it comes to something like climate change, right, like, somebody's on that. Somebody's taking care of that, right? And I feel like, if anything, the last year should have shown us is that on climate change and on a lot of other things, nobody's really on it. (laughs) No one knows what the hell's happening. No one's in charge. No one's got their shit together. So... Again, like small actions, you don't have to go even go march on the street. Small actions make a big difference right now. And I feel like what's held people back now is a weird sense that climate change is sort of this kind of vicious ideological fight that most people don't really understand very well and just don't want to get involved in. But I think uh, Trump has helped kind of clarifying that. Like he's clarifying what the right is and also clarifying what the climate denialists are, which is like, I mean, this is the, 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 the meta story of Trump. He's just stripping the veneer away from what the right has become. And that's true for climate denialism too. There's no, there's barely even any pretense anymore. It's just, we don't like what scientists are saying. We like fossil fuels and we're going to help fossil fuels. So I feel like it, it, it's, it's, safer now for ordinary people to speak up about this in a sense. And I think it's, you know, an obligation for people like me and journalism and people like you and in civil society to make it safer. And that starts by people just literally just talking about it. And last question for me, and then we will let you go, which is um, what would be your advice or your aspirations, hopes right now for the climate movement itself for for activists. I know I, after I, a couple of days after the election, once I could think a little bit straight, uh, I remember thinking, well, you know, I, I have been working as a campaigner for about 20 years and I have this skill now that the world really needs. And I'm so glad that I can now go out there and use everything that I've learned to try to, you know, halt this horrific agenda. And, um, and yet it all is also overwhelming because there's so much coming at us. And, uh, and I just, uh, for those folks who are out there and listening who are climate advocates or part of the climate movement, what would be your advice or hopes for those folks? The great 
story of the immediate Trump aftermath is the incredible outpouring of civil society energy, and it worked. I think it is impossible to emphasize that message enough. It cannot be said enough. Trump is failing so far, mostly, and he's failing because civil society has risen up and shown this incredible energy. So, I mean, I just think the first thing that every activist of any kind needs to hear is just, yes, things are bad, but on the flip side, there's never been, you know, like I keep saying, there's never been a time when you are more likely to be effective just by throwing your body out there, just by making it clear that, that this is not okay. There's never been a better time to be an activist, right? There's never been a time when activism can achieve more and has already achieved more in just a few short months than I've seen it achieve in, you know, forever. Like, I remember, and you probably do too, watching millions of people march against the Iraq war and thinking, my God, this is amazing, and it meant nothing. <laughs> it meant nothing. It had zero effect. It didn't even slow anything down. But that's, but now it's working, right? So just Keep yelling, keep marching, like for God's sake, now more than ever, it's, it's, it's working. But also, in terms of strategy, I feel like the, environment, the, the climate movement at this point needs to kind of have a twofold focus. On one hand, we absolutely need the fighters and resistors who are going to be suing the EPA over and over again and, and, and marching and trying to stop all these bad things from happening. That's absolutely important. But at the same time now, the place where things are happening and they are loosening up and actually happening is at the state and city level where there are, are great, um, you know, it's the, the positive story that, that the movement needs to tell alongside its negative story. The negative story is stop these horrible things from happening. The positive story now, and this is one thing that I've been kind of excited about, is really starting to take a discernible shape. It's not just vague hand-waving about sustainability anymore. There's really a vision starting to shape, t take shape of an, a, sort of an electrified future where your, your house and your battery and your solar panel and your electric car are all hooked into the grid. They're all talking to one another. It's a, it's a, it's a vision of a sustainable future that is A, concrete, B, clear steps to get there, and C, it's cooler and better than the status quo, right? It's futuristic, it's high-tech, it's cool. And the people who are, are experiencing pieces of it now love it, right? So there's a great positive story to drive forward on the state and city level, even as the, you're waging a war of attrition at the, at the federal level. And, and, and both those fights are winnable and being won, so, you know, like, this is the last time to lose heart as an activist. Like, there's, it's, it's a, in a sense, it's kind of a golden, it's a golden age for activism. There's never been a better time to be in that biz. Well, I think that is a perfect, uh, perfect place to end this great conversation. And you warned us that you might not have any hope, but uh, you, you apparently you've still got some in there. <laughs> thank you very much. It was a great yeah. conversation. And, uh, yeah, thank you so much. Thanks, y'all. I'm really glad you guys are out there doing this. All right, that just about does it for us. 
Anna Jane and I want to thank y'all so much for listening and big thanks again to my fellow Tennessean and our interview guest, David Roberts of Fox. This episode was produced by the dazzling Zach Mack, who could easily ride his bike to work if it wasn't still in storage. Subscribe to us on iTunes and please also leave us a review on iTunes. This really helps us out and it helps other people find the show. You can find us wherever you get your podcast, and we'll be posting all episodes and updates about upcoming episodes on our Twitter page at NPLH Podcasts. Be sure to follow us there. If you like our show or if you have any questions, comments, suggestions, or if you want to be part of our show, which you can do by reading a dinner party climate fact for an upcoming episode, tweet at us again. We are at NPLH Podcast. And remember, there's no place like home.